what will you have? You are now tuned in to Carcass Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. What's happening, Star Chasers and Space Wonders? I am Kyle, your Cosmic Navigator, and you are now tuned in to the one and only Star Wars Audio Archives. Brace yourself, because it is time for part three of the Death Trooper Saga. Have you ever felt the exhilaration of a haunted house? That's the vibe I have right now. We're diving deeper than the mysterious depths of a Sarlacc pit. Get ready for revelations and twists that would make even a Twi'lek dancer's head spin. So are you ready to get this space party started? Now let's go. Although there was no longer anyone alive to monitor it, the surveillance system of Imperial Prison Barge Purge did an excellent job relaying the conversation between Trigg and Kale Longo in their cell in Detention Level 5. The screens, now playing to a retinue of Imperial Guard corpses in the barge's main surveillance suite, showed the brothers' faces peering from between the bars. And although the audio systems were perfectly calibrated to capture the slightest conspiratorial whisper, there was very little sound coming through the speakers. In fact, all throughout the detention level, it was quiet. The last of the screaming and coughing noises had already stopped, leaving only a vacant, sucked-out silence that went on and on. Then, softly, the audio sensors picked up Trigg's voice. They're all dead, aren't they? And Kale, falteringly. I don't know. Whoever's left alive, they're already gone. They just left us here. We're gonna die in here, too. Need to stop talking like that, Kale said. Right now, you understand? Trigg didn't reply. Not long ago, he had watched the Rodians die in the cell across from them. In the end, they'd coughed themselves to death, hacking and choking up pieces of their strange gray organs until they'd finally just writhed silently on the floor of their cell, twitching and whining and after what felt like an eternity, falling still. Now the bodies had started to smell. Of course, there was no way the surveillance system could capture that, just as there was no way for anyone who was actually in the area to avoid it. Trigg told himself the decay process shouldn't be happening so quickly, but the smell was there just the same. Maybe it was how the sickness interacted with the individual alien chemistry. It was everywhere, creeping up and down the corridors, trickling through the bars. He imagined rows of cells filled with corpses, dead inmates slumped on their bunks and sprawled on the floor, limp arms hanging through the bars, hundreds of them, gray and seeping, up and down the corridors of the different sublevels. The barge had turned into an immense, floating crypt. So why weren't he and Kale dead? or even sick. Trigg wondered if they were destined to survive through some rare quirk of genetic immunity, only to die of starvation or dehydration like the neglected animals here in the cage. He thought of something his father had always said. The universe has a sense of humor, just not a nice one. What happens next? He asked. Kale went to the bars, cupped both hands around his mouth. Hey! He shouted. Is there anybody out there? His voice was surprisingly loud, ringing through the emptiness. Hello! We're alive in here! Hey! He took in a deep breath. We're alive in here! We're... 
There was a loud clank, and the cell doors up and down the corridor all began to rattle open at once. Kale turned and glanced back at his brother. Somebody heard us. Who? Doesn't matter, Kale said. Right now we have to... He stopped. Trigg watched him. What is it? Kale held up one hand, inclining his head to listen. Whether or not Trigg actually heard a noise from the cell next to theirs, he couldn't be sure. His imagination, always active, was now working overtime to pluck something of substance from the void. Stay there, Kale whispered, leaning out of the cell and looking around. Then he gestured Trigg forward. They went out together, Trigg just half a pace behind Kale, and then he remembered. Wait! It was too late. The figure in the next cell burst out at him, scrambling forward with a snarling howl of rage. Trigg saw Orr Miss fall on top of his older brother and drive him into the opposite wall, limbs flailing, hands slashing, already going for Kale's eyes. Kale collapsed, caught completely off guard, and for an instant, Miss's body covered his entirely, his entire torso struggling spastically for air. The Delphanians seemed to be laboring equally hard to rip Kale's face apart and draw in another breath. He's sick. The thought flashed through Trigg's mind almost faster than he could recognize it. Now's your chance. Maybe you're only one. Hardly thinking, he swung down and grabbed Mrs. Throat from the back, laced his fingers over the doughy wads of flesh surrounding his neck, and squeezed. Please, please let me do this. But the attack brought a surge of strength through the Delphanian's body. Twisting around, Miss slashed free, the ragged up-and-down fissure of his mouth constricting into a grin. Boy, you've overstepped your boundaries for the last time. He grabbed Trigg's face, clamping it between scaly hands, the pressure excruciating. Trigg could feel blackness swarming in, eclipsing all reason. He wanted to scream, but he couldn't open his mouth. Suddenly, the hands fell slack. Trigg's vision cleared, and he saw Miss still staring at him. But shock had taken the place of rage. Through the thing's open mouth, a glint of steel shone like a sharp metallic tongue. Then Miss toppled forward, and Trigg saw the handle of the blade that his brother had shoved through the back of the Delphanian's skull. He came at me with it, Kale said shakily. Trigg found he couldn't speak. Come on, let's go. They walked quickly down the long hallway toward the main exit, passing cell after cell of dead bodies. Kale said nothing. As much as Trigg wanted to talk about what his brother had done, to thank him, to say something about it, to at least acknowledge the fact that it had happened, he didn't know where to start. So he, too, remained silent. Up at the end of the corridor, Trigg saw another figure hunched in the control booth, this one wearing an orange isolation suit. Wembley, Kale said. The guard was hunched forward next to the release switch for the cells. The control he'd engaged to open up the wing. Kale reached into the booth and touched his shoulder. Hey, Wembley, thanks for... Wembley's corpse slouched forward and sideways out of the booth, his forehead striking the floor with a hollow thud. His sagging lips hung open, encrusted with dried blood and mucus, and his upturned eyes were vacant. Staring at him, Trigg thought he saw a tremor, one last spasm passing through the shoulders and gut, but that too was probably just his imagination. He let us out, probably the last thing he did. 
It was, a voice said. They looked around to see Wembley's BLX unit standing in the corner of the booth. The droid stood awkwardly with its arms at its sides, looking utterly lost without its master. Come on, Trigg said. You can come with us. The BLX seemed to consider the offer, but only for a moment. No, thank you. I belong here. When we are rescued. He allowed the thought to trail off, perhaps unable to convince itself of that eventuality. You sure? Forget it, Kale said. Let's get out of here. Trigg cleared his throat. <clears throat> Where are we going? There's got to be an escape pod somewhere up above, maybe on the administrative level. You don't think somebody already took it? The warden or, or the guards? Kale faced him, gripped Trigg's shoulders in his hands, and held on firmly, even a little painfully. We need a plan, and right now, that's as good as any. So unless you've got a better idea, you can help me find a way up there. Trigg bit his lip, nodded, made himself say, Okay. It took a long time to find the turbo lifts up from main detention. Most of the bodies they ran across were like the inmates on this level. Corpses in bunks, corpses on floors, corpses curled up in corners, arms already stiffening around their folded knees, as if somehow balling themselves up could stave off the eventuality of death. There were suicides. One inmate had hung himself from the bars, another had wrapped a bag around his head. Dead guards and stormtroopers lay on the floor, while puzzled-looking maintenance droids hovered over them, trying to make sense of the mass carnage, picking them up and putting them down again. Kale collected blasters from two of the bodies, but Trigg could tell just by the way he carried them that he wasn't entirely comfortable with the weapons, although he tried to act casual about it. They saw other things as well. Outside one cell, a dead guard lay with his back against the bars. Trigg saw that he'd been tied by the wrists and around the neck by the two dead inmates inside the cell. The inmates had since died of the disease, but that hadn't been what killed the guard. The cons had somehow lured him close enough to bind him there and then tortured him to death, stabbing, slashing, and mutilating him with the crude, sharpened instruments that were still clutched in their dead hands. They saw an inmate, an alien species that Trigg didn't recognize, comprising two conjoined bodies one twice the size of the other. The smaller body had already died and fallen limp, while the larger one cradled it weakly like its own child, weeping and trying to breathe. It didn't even look up at them as they walked by. They saw a maintenance droid carrying on a cheerful one-sided conversation with a dead stormtrooper. They saw two Imperial guards slumped dead over a Dejaric hollow chest table while the figures on the table lumbered aimlessly around the board awaiting instruction. Finally, they found a turbo lift and waited for the hatchway to slide open. There was a pair of dead guards inside, both of them armed, slouched in opposite corners, their torsos torn apart and scorched by blaster bolts, as if in the final throes of delirium, they'd turned against each other. Kale hoisted them by their biohazard suits and dragged them out of the lift, and Trigg was glad his brother didn't ask him to help. Looking at the bodies was one thing, but touching them, lifting them up, hoisting their dead weight, that wasn't something he felt prepared for. What if one of their cold, dead hands was to reach up and grab hold of him? Would he even be able to scream? There was a clicking sound behind them, and Trigg glanced back over his shoulder. He thought about Miss in the cell next to theirs. 
the cell that had been empty when he'd looked. Miss must have run out immediately after Wembley had sprung open the doors for them. Did that mean Miss was immune too? Trigg wondered if he was following them. Just because he didn't see anything didn't mean it wasn't there. On the uppermost level of detention, they heard a faint mewling sound like something crying. It was plaintive and childlike, with a despondency all the more resonant to Trigg because he recognized it in his own heart. He stopped and looked in the direction of the noise. You hear that? Kale shook his head. It's not our business. What if they need help? Kale flashed him a tired look but didn't argue. They filed up the hallway, passing more cells of dead inmates, reminding Trigg once more of neglected domesticated species that had been forgotten and left to rot by their masters. Kale kept the blasters half-raised at his sides. The mewling noise grew louder until Trigg stopped and stared into the final cell in the line. A young Wookiee was crouched inside the cell. He was much smaller than Trigg, probably not much more than a toddler. He was crouched down over the bodies of what had to be his family, two adults and an older sibling, clutching their hands to his face and holding their arms around himself as if to simulate a hug. Look at this, Kale murmured. Trigg saw what his brother was pointing at. The sickness had affected the dead Wookiees differently. Their tongues had swollen until they dangled like grotesque overripe fruit from their mouths, and their throats had ruptured completely, splitting open to expose deep red musculature within. When the young one looked up and saw Trigg and Kale standing outside the cell, his blue eyes shone with fear and dread. It's okay, Trigg said softly. We're not going to hurt you. He glanced at Kale. He must be immune, like us. So what are we going to do about it? Wait here. Trigg ran back down the hallway to the abandoned guard station, the door left wide open by whoever had left their post to creep off and die in private. Stepping inside the booth, he found the switch to open the cells, the one that Wembley had died activating for them down on their own level. The bars rattled open and he went back to where his brother still stood, looking in at the young Wookiee. Come on out, Trigg told him. You're free now. The Wookiee just stared at them. It wasn't even making the crying sound anymore, but somehow its silence was worse. That was a lesson Trigg was already learning. The silence was always worse. You can't stay here. Trigg extended his hand toward the Wookiee. Come with us. Careful, Kale said. He'll take your hand off if... It's okay, Trigg said, keeping his hand where it was. We won't hurt you. Kale sighed. Hey, man, look. He's all alone. And he obviously wants to stay that way, all right? For a moment, the Wookiee peered at him cautiously, as if, like Wembley's BLX, it was actually considering the offer. Trigg waited to see if anything was going to happen. In the end, though... The youngster just bent forward and picked up the slack arms of its parents and pressed them to either side of its small frame. It wouldn't look up at Kale and Trigg again, not even when they turned and finally walked away. They were at the far end of the corridor when they heard it start to scream. Trigg froze, the fine hairs prickling all down his back. Just the sound made him feel as if his entire body had been coated with a layer of slick, half-melted ice. His breath lodged inside his lungs, caught just below his throat. 
The Wookiee's screams kept going, strangled, agonized screams mixed with the horrifying, slobbering sound of something eating. The screams stopped, but the grunting, eating sounds continued, greedy and breathless, slurping and crunching. His mind flashed to Orr Miss in the cell next to theirs, the whispering and giggling and the sensation that it had been following them. But that's impossible. Miss is dead. You saw it yourself. What is it? He whispered. Not our business. Kale grabbed his hand. Keep going. The last of Zahara's patients died that night. In the end, it happened very quickly. About half of them had been human, the others different alien species, but it didn't make a difference. In the last moments, some of the non-humans had reverted to their native languages. Some had clutched her hand and talked to her passionately, if brokenly, through uncontrollable coughing, as if she were some family member or loved one. And she listened and nodded, even if she didn't understand a word of it. At Rinnell, they taught her death was something you got used to. Zahara had met plenty of physicians who claimed to have adjusted to it, and they always seemed eerie to her somehow, more detached and mechanical than the droids that served alongside them. She tended to avoid such doctors and their cold, clinical eyes. Waste brought the news of the final deaths with a neutral tone that she'd never heard before. A lack of effect so peculiar that she wondered if it had been programmed for the worst eventualities. Perhaps it was what passed for sympathy in the droid world. Then, in an almost apologetic voice, the 2-1-B added, I've finished the analysis of your own blood as well. And? You're obviously immune to the pathogen. What I meant was that I believe I've had some success in analyzing the immunity gene within your own chemical makeup and synthesizing it. She stared at him. You found a cure. Not a cure, necessarily, but a kind of antivirus, if what we're dealing with is indeed viral in nature, something that can be administered intravenously. The droid held up a syringe filled with clear fluid and looked around at the infirmary, the bodies in their beds. If there are any survivors aboard the barge, they ought to get this as soon as possible. Zahara looked at the needle belated salvation dripping from its spike. She should have felt some kind of relief, and later perhaps she might. But her first reaction to the news, if there are any survivors aboard the barge, was a profound sense of personal failure, manifesting itself as a sandbagged heaviness in the legs and belly. The health of the barge and its inmates and staff had been her responsibility. What had happened here over the last few hours was unthinkable, a collapse of such glaring magnitude that she couldn't look at it except through the filter of her own personal culpability. Sartorius might have been taunting her, but he was right. She would never live this down. There's no time for self-pity, a voice inside her head said. You need to find out who's left, sooner rather than later. As usual, the voice was right. She did herself the favor of recognizing that fact and pushed down on the black feeling inside her belly. To her mild surprise, it collapsed, or rather, burst, like a bubble. I'll be back. Dr. Cody? Waste sounded alarmed. Where are you going? Up to the pilot station. I need to run a bioscan on the barge and locate any survivors. I'll go with you. No, she said. 
You need to stay here in case anyone else comes for treatment. And then, sensing the droid's reluctance, that's an order, Waste, get me? Yes, of course. But given the circumstances, I would feel much more comfortable if you would simply allow me. I'll be fine. Yes, Doctor. Watch for survivors, she said, and walked out the door. She didn't have to go far before the notion of survivors struck her as an increasingly unlikely prospect. She stepped over and around the bodies, breathing through her mouth when the odor became too much. Almost immediately, she wished she'd allowed Waste to come with her. The droid's prattling would have made everything else easier to take. She arrived at the pilot station and slipped through the doors, braced for what she found there. The Purge's flight crew had not abandoned their posts, even in death. The corpses of the pilot and co-pilot, a couple of rough-hewn Imperial lifers she'd never really gotten to know, slouched backwards in their seats, mouths gaping, algae-gray flesh already beginning to sag from their bones. As Zahara approached them, the barge's instrumentation suite recognized her immediately. Panels blinking, and a computerized voice cut in from some hidden speaker. Identification, please. The voice had been synthesized to sound female, businesslike, but pleasant. And Zahara tried to remember what the pilots called her, and then remembered. Tisa. Word was that on the longer flights, various guards had been caught up here after hours chatting her up. This is Chief Medical Officer Zahara Cody. Thank you, Tisa said. Confirming retinal match. There was a pause, perhaps five seconds, and a single satisfied beep. Identification confirmed, Dr. Cody. Awaiting orders. Run a bioscan of the barge, she said. Acknowledge. Running bioscan. Lights pulsed. Bioscan complete. Imperial Prison Barge Purge. Previous inmate and administrative census, 522, according to the... Just tell me who's left. Currently, active lifeform census is six. Six? Correct. That's impossible. Would you like me to recalibrate the bioscan variables? Zahara stopped and considered the options. What are the variables? Positive lifeform reading is based on algorithmic interpretation of brainwaves, body temperature, motion, and heart rate. What about alien species whose normal body temp or pulse don't fit within those parameters? Zahara asked. They wouldn't show up on the scan, would they? Negative. Scan parameters are continuously recalibrated to incorporate the physiological traits of every member of the inmate population. In fact, current calibration standards reflect accurate lifeform senses with a 0.001% margin of... Where are they? Zahara asked. The six. Tisa's hollow screen brightened to extend the transparent, three-dimensional diagram of the barge. It looked much cleaner in miniature, etched out with fine, straight lines, a drafter's dream of perfect geometry. The pilot station occupied the uppermost level. On one end of it, rising like a periscope, stood the retractable docking shaft that still connected them to the destroyer. On the other end of the pilot station, a wide, descending gangway led downward to the conjoining administration level flanked on port and starboard sides by the barge's escape pods. The mess hall, infirmary, and guards' quarters occupied the far end of that same level. And below that, the six individual strata that constituted Genpop. 
any farther down, Zahara knew, and you'd find yourself amid a series of beveled hatches giving way to numberless sublevels, including the bottom-most holding cells. In all, she counted the six tiny blips of red light distributed throughout it. Current lifeform census indicates one active reading in the pilot station, one on the administration level, two in general population, detention level one, and two in solitary confinement. Solitary. She hadn't even thought about that until now. Reserved for the worst and most dangerous inmates on the barge, a haven for maniacs and extreme flight risks, it was the one place where the sickness might not have had an opportunity to spread. The question was whether she should risk going down there alone. Of course, there were plenty of weapons lying around, but she didn't relish the idea of letting two of Warden Cloth's worst inmates free, only to blast them into oblivion when they attacked her. Still, what choice did she have? Can you patch me through to the infirmary? Acknowledged, Tisa said, and the monitor above the hologram brightened to show the med bay. At one corner of the screen, Zahara saw Waste walking from bed to bed, removing monitors from the last of the dead, gathering up old IV lines and ventilator tubing. He was talking to himself in a voice too low to hear, perhaps only reviewing the diagnostic data. But seeing him like this made her feel suddenly, inexplicably sad. Waste. The 2-1-B stopped and looked up from the screen. Oh, hello, Dr. Cody. Was the bioscan a success? She wasn't sure how to answer that one. I'm going down to solitary. Can you meet me down there? Yes, of course. He paused. Dr. Cody? Yes. How many remaining life forms are there? Six. Six? The droid repeated tonelessly. Oh, I see. For a moment, he glanced back at the infirmary full of bodies all the patients who had died on their watch despite all their efforts, and then up to the screen again. Well, I suppose I'll meet you down there then. See you there, she said, and signed off. Zahara left the pilot station and took the turbo lift straight down to the barge's lowest inhabited level. She'd almost never descended this deep into the barge, had maybe been down here twice since she'd started here, to treat inmates who were too sick or dangerous to come up to the infirmary. The only thing that lay beneath it was the mechanical and maintenance sublevel, the cramped domain of eyeless maintenance droids that never saw the light of day. The lift doors opened to release her into a bare hallway, with exposed wires dangling from the overhead girders. Zahara squinted, trying to make out the details. Apparently, the main power circuitry didn't work so well down here. Somewhere above her, a steam vent hissed out a steady current of moist, rancid-smelling air like the stale breath of a terminal patient. She didn't see any sign of the 2-1-B anywhere, and wondered whether she should go any farther without it. It didn't really matter if there were no other survivors except... Oh, she said aloud, startled out of her thoughts, falling forward and catching herself on the damp corridor wall where her palms slipped almost landing her flat on her face. She'd tripped on the bodies of the guards in front of her. She counted five of them, sprawled out in a harrowing tableau. They were all wearing isolation suits and masks, except for one, a younger guard whom Zahara recognized from a month or so earlier, when he'd come to the infirmary complaining of some minor skin irritation. She'd liked him well enough and had fallen easily into conversation, 
She remembered him talking about his wife and children back on his homeworld of Chandrala. Looking down at his body, Zahara saw a sheet of flimsiplast curled in his hand. She knelt down to pick it up and started reading. Kai, I know I told you and the kids I would be home after this run, but that is not going to happen. I'm sorry to say that something has gone wrong on the barge. Everybody is getting sick and nobody knows why. Almost everybody has died so far. At first I thought it was going to be okay, but now it looks like I have it too. I'm sorry, Kai. I know this is going to be hard on the boys. Will you please tell them their daddy loves them? I am so sorry this is how things turned out, but tell them I served to the best of my abilities, and I was not a coward and never scared. And I love you with all my heart. At the bottom, the guard had attempted to write his name, but the letters had come out so crooked and helpless, probably from his trembling hand, that the signature was little more than a scribble. Zahara folded the note and slipped it into the breast pocket of her uniform, next to the vial of antivirus. She slipped the key card from the guard's uniform and turned toward the sign marked solitary. Then she stopped. Where was Waste? She'd given the 2-1-B ample time to get down here, and usually he was so prompt. Something happened to him. It was that voice again, the one inside her head, the one that was never wrong. She wondered if she should go, if she even should have come down here to begin with. You came this far. With real reluctance, she bent down and picked up one of the blasters from a dead guard's hands. It was cold and felt heavier than she remembered. Zahara had received the requisite weapons training before signing on, and was able to locate the safety mechanism and switch the blaster over to stun. There were three separate cells. Each had a solid metal door, dull gray and coffin-sized, with a control pad and a slot for the keycard mounted up and to the right. Zahara stepped up to the first door. She realized she'd stopped breathing. Her body felt weightless as if her legs had simply vanished beneath her. Faintly, she could smell the hot, coppery scent of her own fear coming off her body, an unpleasant, unnecessary reminder of how little she really wanted to be doing any of this. You don't have to. Yes, I do, she thought, and brought the keycard to the slot. Her hand was shaking, and it took a moment to line it up properly and push it in. The door began to slide open. She jerked the blaster up, pointing it into the semi-darkness. Light from the outside cast her silhouette into the cell like an outline cut crisply from black fabric with very sharp scissors. Squinting in, she could make out an empty bench, a table, but the silent two-by-two -two cube was otherwise absolutely empty. There was no one here. She stepped back and turned to the second cell, slotted the card, and... The noise from inside the cell sounded like a snarl of surprise and rage. Zahara lurched backward, the blaster suddenly loose and clumsy in her hand. Somehow unable to find the trigger as the cell's occupant charged toward her, the thing was huge. Big enough that it had to duck and twist its shoulders to fit through the cell doorway, with sharp white teeth and eyes that shot back splintered gleams of intelligence. Stumbling backward, Zahara tried to say, hold it! but the words got clogged up in her throat. It was like trying to cry out in a dream, struggling to push words through strengthless, suffocated lungs. The thing stopped directly in front of her and lifted its shaggy head, perhaps seeing the blaster. 
It was a Wookiee, she realized. And at the same time, she was aware of a pounding noise from the last remaining cell, a muffled shouting on the other side of the wall. Hold it, she said again, more clearly this time. She aimed the blaster upward. Don't move, the Wookiee moaned. Zahara raised the keycard and wondered how she was supposed to hold both convicts at bay with one blaster. But it was too late now. The last cell door rattled open to reveal the figure standing immediately inside. Zahara flicked her eyes back at the Wookiee, but he hadn't moved from his spot. Glancing back at the other convict, she realized she was looking at a dark-haired man, probably in his late twenties, dressed in an ill-fitting prison uniform. He was staring at her with dark and questioning eyes. What's going on down here? I'm Dr. Cody, she said. Chief medical officer, there's been... So, you didn't bring us dinner? What? No. She'd expected hostility, confusion, or disdain, but the inmate's cavalier attitude already had her flustered. I'm afraid there's been an incident. She raised the blaster and the Wookiee threw back its head and let out a restless, deep-chested bray that seemed to shake the air around her. Okay, okay, the man said. Put the blaster down, huh? You're making Chewie nervous. Chewie? Chewbacca, my co-pilot, the dark-haired man said, coming forward so she could see his face more clearly. The half-smile quirked across his face. I'm on Solo. By the time they found the escape pod, Trigg was sure they were being followed. He could hear breathing noises behind them, the occasional thumping footstep of something tracking them gracelessly through the central hallway of the admin wing, no longer bothering with stealth. Sometimes it made little scratching noises. Other times, he could only hear it breathing. He didn't even need to say anything about it to Kale. Kale knew it too. Rather than bringing him comfort, the unspoken awareness between them had the paradoxical effect of accelerating the near panic building up in Trigg's nervous system. It was as if he were dealing not only with his own apprehension, but Kale's as well. Finally, they saw the escape pod, just up ahead on the outer wall. There it is. Kale didn't bother hiding the relief in his voice as he lifted the hatch of the pod. Go ahead, get in there. Trigg climbed in. Not much room. Enough for us. Kale got in behind him and looked at the array of controls. Now we just have to figure out how to get out of here. Can you work it? Sure. You don't know what you're doing, do you? Will you give me a second to think? Kale made a fist and bit his knuckle, gazing at the instrumentation array. I thought these things were automated, but... A voice behind them said, What have we here? It was Sartorus. He was standing there with blasters in both hands, looking just as unhappy to see them as Trigg felt staring back at him. Intuitively, just from his posture, Trigg understood that there was something between them and the man. Something Sartorus knew about them or their father, although Trigg didn't know what it was. But he felt it nonetheless, some deeply personal schism of unease, emerging across the guard's face and then vanishing again almost as quickly, like an exhaled breath across a pane of glass. Get out, Sartorus said flatly. Kale frowned, shook his head. What? You heard me. Get moving. Sartorus twitched the barrel of one blaster rifle at Trigg. You too. 
There's plenty of room for all three of us. Sure. Sartorius grinned without a trace of humor. It did nothing to improve the surliness of his expression. And I'm sure we'd be very cozy together. But that's not the plan. Now get out of here. He was still aiming the blasters at them. What are you waiting for? You're just going to let us die here? Kale asked. Boy, you can go running naked through the mess hall for all I care. The only reason I haven't already shot you is that I have to drag your carcasses out of the escape pod. So why don't you save me the trouble? You don't understand, Trigg said. There's something aboard the barge and it's still alive. It's been following us. If you leave us here... Sonny, I am sick unto death of hearing you talk. Sartorius pointed the blaster at Trigg's face, the hole in its barrel looming huge, black and endless. And Trigg felt his whole body just disappear. Faintly, from what felt like light years away, he could feel his big brother's hand on his shoulder, tugging him back. Come on, Kale's voice said. Still weightless, Trigg allowed himself to be pulled backward, the rest of the way out of the pod. As he stumbled, he saw Sartorius taking a flat black object from his pocket and slotting it into the pod's navigation system. The two of them already forgotten, a problem that no longer concerned him. The hatch sealed shut with a barely audible whoosh. It was almost anticlimactic. There was a muffled thunk as the bolts blew and the pod was gone, ejected, leaving Trigg and Kale standing there looking at the empty place where it used to be. Kale cleared his throat. After a long pause, he seemed to remember that Trigg was standing next to him. Hey, he said. It's gonna be okay. Trigg looked up at him. He felt not only weightless now, but transparent. Barely there. It was as if somebody had just hooked a vacuum to his soul and sucked all the hope out of it. Come on, Kale said. I've got an idea. It took Zahara less than a minute to realize that Han Solo, whoever he was, was one of the most unusual inmates she'd ever encountered. The realization struck her most forcefully when she tried to explain to him what had happened aboard the barge, and how critically he and the Wookiee needed her assistance if they were going to stay alive. Whoa, 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 Han said, waving an impatient hand in her face. Hey, you're saying everybody on this flying trash can is dead, except for us? He looked at the Wookiee standing next to him, as if to confirm what his ears were telling him. Are you buying any of this? <coughs> the Wookiee gave a plaintive, honking growl. Zahara didn't know much Shrewook, but most of what she'd picked up had to do with vocal inflection, and Chewbacca's was incredulity, pure and simple. Yeah, Han said. Me either. He looked back at Zahara. That the best you can do, Doc? You got another tale you want to try out? You'll see for yourself soon enough. The infection, it's some kind of virus, has an estimated mortality rate of 99.7%. Sounds like somebody's been getting their statistics from a droid. Han took a step back, taking his first real look at her and breaking into an appreciative smile. Although I must say, Doctor, all things considered, you seem to be in pretty good shape. Zahara felt her cheeks redden. I'm immune. Well, I guess we must be too, huh? It's possible, but I doubt it. So how come we're still alive? You've been sealed away in solitary. Now that you're out here and exposed, though, I need to inject you with the antivirus. 
She took the syringe from her pocket, along with the basic medical kit that she carried with her everywhere. This will only take a second. I just need to see your arm and... At the appearance of the needle, the Wookiee snarled at her, a noise that went right through Zahara's thoracic cavity, and for the second time she saw the glint of his teeth, the bright white incisors, and caught a whiff of something feral from either his fur or his breath. She took a step back. You need this, she said, and turned to Han. Both of you do. Han shook his head. Wookies aren't too big on needles. Neither am I. I'm a physician. Yeah, well, you might want to work on that bedside manner. He glanced at the weapon, still in her hand. Or has blaster point medicine become standard operating procedure for the Empire? This was just a precaution. We can't afford to stand around and discuss this. Too many people have already died. Listen, Doc, I... Han said, and stopped. Glancing back following his line of sight, Zahara saw that he was staring at the outstretched leg protruding from around the corner, one of the guards whose bodies she'd stepped over to get here. Han craned his neck further, and she knew that he could see some of the other corpses as well. When he looked back at her, the defiance in his expression had faded, replaced with something else. Not fear, necessarily, but a kind of acute awareness of his surroundings. He looked over at Chewbacca, and the Wookiee sniffed the air and let out a low, restless sound from somewhere deep inside his throat. Yeah, Han muttered. Me too. And then begrudgingly to Zahara. I'm not crazy about my options here, Doc. Please, she said, holding his gaze. You need this. He reached down and pushed up his sleeve. Zahara realized that she wasn't going to be able to hold on to the blaster rifle and treat him at the same time. She set the blaster aside, kicking it out of the cell behind her into the hallway, then took Han's arm, swabbed it, and slipped the needle in. Han winced as she pushed down the plunger. You tested this, right? You're actually the first. Han's eyes went huge. What? Relax, Zahara said. How's your breathing? I'll let you know in a minute, he said, if I'm not already dead. Zahara tried not to let the worry show on her face. She'd trusted Waste's analysis of the antivirus implicitly. But that didn't mean there couldn't have been some margin of error along the way. And who knew exactly how it would interact with any individual's unique chemical makeup? And what would it do to a completely different species, a non-human? But the alternative was to allow Chewbacca to become infected, and she wasn't at all sure that the antivirus could make a difference at that point. She turned to the Wookiee. Your turn. Chewbacca put out his arm. Finding a vein on a Wookiee was always a challenge, but she felt one beneath a thickly matted fur, sliding the needle in. He growled, but didn't move. There, she said. Now we can... The Wookiee screamed. The first thing Chewbacca felt was the pain of the young ones. It came at him from everywhere at once, a threnody of wounded voices assailing him from all sides. He didn't know what it meant, except that something bad had happened here aboard the barge, and now it was happening to him too. In a horrible way, he felt as if he were part of it, complicit in these unspeakable crimes because of the injection that the woman had given him. The sickness she'd implanted under his fur, under his skin, was alive and crawling through him. 
a living gray thing going up his arm to his shoulder to his throat, and the sickness clucked its tongue and whispered, Yes, you did those things. Yes, you are those things. Had he done it? Had he somehow hurt them? But that couldn't be right. The doctor hadn't poisoned him. She'd injected him with a cure. Then why did it hurt so much? And why did he still hear the young ones screaming? His skull felt like it was filling with fluid, blocking out his sense of smell. But his hearing was keener than ever. Voices were shrieking at him, no longer pleading, but accusing him of unspeakable atrocities. And when he looked down at his hands, he saw that they were dripping with blood, while the rank, salty flavor of their blood was in his mouth. And then the sickness was in him. And the sickness wanted to eat. He snarled louder, lashed out, wanting to make it go away, but it was too deep already, burrowing through his memory, bringing back details he hadn't remembered in nearly two hundred years. He heard old Life Day songs from Kashyyyk, saw faces, old Adichik, Calabau, his beloved Mala, except their faces were changing now, melting and stretching, mouths hooking into strange, contemptuous grins. His father's eyes lit upon him, saw all the shame he tried to hide. They knew what he was now that the sickness was inside of him, and what the sickness would make him do to the little ones. They knew how he would slaughter them in their cells and feast upon their steaming entrails, shoving them into his mouth without bothering to chew. Enslaved by the sickness and its appetite, they saw how the sickness could not be sated, how it wanted to keep on killing and eating until there was nothing left but blood that might be lapped up from the cold durasteel floors. They said, These are the true songs of life day. These songs are eat and kill, eat and kill. No, it's not true. It's not. Screaming louder, a deafening roar, at least in his own mind, he felt the oblivion of the sickness coming and was grateful for it. An opportunity to hide, to get away from the things he was experiencing. He did not try to escape. He ran toward it, eagerly. Zahara jumped back, instinctively ducking and flinging both hands up to protect herself. Chewbacca's arm swung out blindly, the syringe still protruding from it, and the needle sailed across the cell like a poorly thrown dart, hitting the wall and disappearing somewhere in the half-light. If she hadn't dropped down when she did, the Wookiee's arm would have crushed her throat. Hey, pal, take it easy, Han said, reaching over to him. Chewie, it's just... Chewbacca rounded on him with a full-throated howl, and Han jerked backward frowned and stared at Zahara. What did you do to him? Nothing. He got the same thing you got. Maybe it works differently for his species. Did you ever think about that? He looked back at Chewbacca, but the Wookiee's expression was completely alien now. Unfriendly, no trace of recognition in his eyes. He seemed confused, frightened, and ready to attack whatever threat he perceived was nearby. The ripe, feral stink that Zahara had caught a whiff of earlier was back, stronger now, almost overwhelming. As if some aggression gland inside his metabolism had started spurting violent hormones through his brain. He was growling steadily now. Then Zahara noticed the swelling. It was already affecting his throat, causing it to balloon up. 
and what she'd thought were growls had actually become a series of suffocated breaths. What is that? Han asked. What's happening to his neck? Zahara didn't answer. She couldn't make coherent sense of her own thoughts, except that somehow she'd managed to find some of the last survivors aboard the barge, only to help the disease do its job even more efficiently. She pulled herself together, flashing through options. Somehow the antivirus had either weakened the Wookiee's immunity to the pathogen, or the sickness itself had become more aggressive in the past few hours, shortening its incubation time from hours to minutes. Either way, Chewbacca fell to his knees with a crash, clasping his arms over his head and rocked back and forth with a diminishing series of horrible gargling groans. When he lifted his head again, it was with monumental effort and Zahara saw that the rage was draining away from his face. But this was only a side effect of oxygen debt, his gaze fogging over even as his enormous shoulders sagged forward, giving way to gravity until the entirety of his body slumped face down to the floor. Zahara squatted down. Help me roll him over. What? Why? Just do it. Han grabbed Chewbacca's shoulder and Zahara lifted his hips, tilting the massive bulk of the Wookiee's body and tumbling him onto his back. She put her hand behind his furry head, down beneath his neck and lifted upward. Find the syringe. Uh-uh. No way. Han shook his head. You're not giving him another drop of that stuff. You want your friend to live. Find the cocking syringe. Han took a second to digest this and then went back into the far corner of the cell, muttering under his breath. Zahara understood that right now a huge part of saving the Wookiee's life was just a matter of making Han believe her. If he didn't, if he tried to interfere, there was nothing she could do except make Chewbacca comfortable until he died. Han came back a moment later with the syringe in his hand. I hope you... Zahara grabbed it from him, squirted out the last of the antivirus, and tilted Chewbacca's head back, palpating the clogged airway. Carefully avoiding the arterial passageways, she slid the empty needle in, felt the pop as it found the pocket of fluid, and pulled the plunger back. Droids still can't do this, she thought. There's not a droid in the world that would try this. And probably for good reason. Pinkish-gray liquid began to fill the barrel of the syringe. Han didn't say anything, but she could hear the dry click as he swallowed hard. She emptied the syringe, put it back in, and tapped the fluid again. After three full syringes, the swelling began to go down. The screaming in Chewie's head got louder. What are the true songs of life day? I am inside you the sickness whispered, and you will sing the songs as I teach them, and those songs are to kill and to eat, and you will sing them while I am still inside you, while I am still hungry, and I am always hungry, and you will sing my songs. Yes, Chewbacca told it, his thoughts moving in the oddly formal way they sometimes did when he was thinking of things very seriously. Yes, you are inside of me. I breathed you in when the prison door was opened, just like Han breathed you in. And you made him cough and start choking. But then the doctor gave us the medicine. The sickness screamed at him and raged, but he didn't hear it anymore. He felt the pressure loosening from his chest. He was breathing again, the stricture in his throat abating, allowing for the first tentative passage of air. 
vision was clearing too, becoming stable, allowing him to see Han and the doctor standing over him, their faces worried. Those are the true songs of Life Day. The strength coming back through him now was the strength of his family and homeworld. He sat up but did not try his voice. He didn't trust it yet. He looked down at his hands. They were clean. Relief sagged through him, and it was like coming home to faces that recognized him and welcomed him in. There was no more screaming now. Inside the house where he had been born, someone was playing music. Easy. Zahara broke open a packet of bandages and adhesive, and tried as best she could to dress the tiny pinhole incision she'd left on his throat. She couldn't see through all the fur, but her fingers knew instinctively where it was. We'll have to clean that up as soon as we can. How do you feel? He gave a hoarse cry, then a louder one. You okay, pal? Han asked. And when Chewie gave a quick bark of acknowledgement, he turned to Zahara. Lady, you just got really lucky. Hopefully we all did, she said. If that antivirus works, you should both be protected. They helped Chewbacca to his feet, a process that fully required both of their strengths. Han watched him closely, preparing for relapse, but the Wookiee seemed steady enough once he was standing up. Think you can travel, buddy? Han asked. <coughs> Chewie barked out another growl. Okay, all right, Han said. Forget I asked. The turbo lifts back this way, Zahara said, pointing around the corner. We can go back through. Just be careful you don't trip over the... They all stopped. What happened to the bodies? Han asked. The dead guards. Zahara blinked down at the floor where the corpses of the prison guards had been sprawled out. They'd all seen them. But now they were gone. Maybe they weren't dead? Han said doubtfully. I examined them. So somebody came and moved them. I don't know, maintenance droids or something. He looked at her. Is there a reason we're still standing here discussing this? Zahara thought about it. She wondered if maybe the 2-1-B had come down to meet her and moved the corpses, but that just didn't make sense. The blasters were gone too, she realized, including the ones she'd just kicked out of the room. Somewhere in the semi-darkness, she thought she heard something creak, some random self-activating servo coming to life inside the walls. And she jumped, startled. Suddenly, she realized that Han was right. They had to get out of here. Not soon, but now. The turbo lifts over this way, she said. Han and Chewie followed her in, the doors closing as they glided upward. Where are we going? Medbay. I've got to talk to Waste. Who's Waste? My surgical droid. And you call him Waste? Like a waste of space? Waste of space, waste of programming. She shrugged, relaxing a little now that they were out of the damp, shadow-crawling lower corridor. I started it as a joke, and it just kind of stuck. He doesn't mind? He thinks it's a term of endearment, she said, and upon saying so, realized it was true. Han grunted as the lift reached the infirmary level and stopped. Zahara remembered the corridor vividly, how it had been littered with bloated corpses of guards and stormtroopers who had died waiting to get into medbay. Dozens of them, sometimes stuck to one another with the fluid they'd been heaving up when they finally collapsed. The smell would have intensified too, she knew. 
She expected Han would say something, maybe cover his mouth and stand there a moment, taking it all in, the way that she had when she'd first laid eyes on it. The turbo lift stopped, and the doors slid open on the hallway. Zahara braced herself with a shock, and looking out, felt a different kind of shock go through her, quick and jolting, making her legs feel heavy and weak at the same time. All the bodies were gone. Han and Chewie followed Zahara down the corridor without talking. Han, in particular, didn't like it, nor was he crazy about the way the doctor kept glancing back over her shoulder. She was easy on the eyes, he had to admit, but fear didn't do much for her face. And she was keeping something from him. In his experience, women and secrets mixed together to form something only slightly less volatile than an unstable fusion reactor. How much farther is it? he asked. She didn't answer or even look at him, just held up her hand, meaning either shut up, stop walking, or both. Han turned to glance at Chewie, wondering aloud how much longer they were supposed to put up with this. It had been a while since they'd been free. Weeks, he guessed, since the Imperials had boarded the Millennium Falcon and impounded the ship and her cargo. The shuttle had ferried them here to this barge, just another pair of anonymous smugglers whom the galaxy couldn't care less about. And that would have been the end of it, if Han hadn't gotten impatient and tried to escape a number of days earlier during a well-choreographed mess hall riot. He'd clocked a prison guard, Chewie had thrown a stormtrooper across the table, and the next thing they knew, everything went dark. Very dark. Down in the hole, he'd spent most of his time speculating about what was going to happen next, who, if anyone, he and Chewie could rely on for a rescue. A smuggler's friends were few, and those who would actually stick their necks out for the likes of Han were effectively non-existent. For the first time, he had begun to wonder if he and Chewie were destined to spend whatever remained of their lives in some cramped and poorly lit corrections dungeon. In front of him, the doctor stopped walking again, turned, and looked through an open hatchway. Though he'd never been up here before, Han figured it was the med bay. He came up alongside her and peered inside then back at the doctor. From the expression on Zahara's face, Han guessed this wasn't how it had looked when she'd left it. Every bed was empty. All the medical equipment, monitors, and medication pumps were active, blinking and twittering to themselves, but the IV lines, tubes and cords, dangled loose, some of them dripping liquid medication in puddles the size of small lakes. Bed sheets and blankets hung in twisted disarray, stained with sweat and blood, dragged across the floor and left there. Han realized the silence was making his shoulders tighten up, and his right hand feel particularly lonely where his blaster ought to have been. He made a quick but conscious decision to calm down. Busy place, he remarked. She shook her head. It was full when I left. No offense, Doc, but maybe this sickness is affecting you too. You don't understand, she said. They were all dead. Twenty or thirty of them. Guards, inmates, plus the ones lying on the floor. I wouldn't have left them here if there was something I could still do to help. Where's your droid? I don't know, she raised her voice. Waste? The 2-1-B didn't answer. Han and Chewie walked around her on either side, looking at the rows of empty beds. Chewie growled, and Han murmured, Yeah, me either. He stepped over a bloody hospital gown that looked as though it had been ripped in half, then looked back up at Zahara. 
Say you're right, and there's nobody else left alive. How are we gonna get out of here? There's the Star Destroyer. Han was sure that he'd misheard her. Excuse me? Up above us. Apparently it's a derelict. The barge docked on it to scavenge for parts for the thrusters. That's when everything really started going wrong. I have no idea whether the engines were repaired before the maintenance team died. Otherwise... So this contagious disease came from the destroyer? She nodded. Sounds like a good place to keep clear of. Zahara didn't answer him. She had bent down to study a patchy streak of bloodstains from under one of the beds. Reaching under, she touched something. Han couldn't tell what it was, and dragged it slowly into view. What is that? Han asked. And then he saw. The hand was human, and had been ripped free by sheer force. The bones of the forearm cracked and severed by some blunt object. Two of the fingers were missing, plucked from the knuckle. Zahara looked at it with no particular emotion evident on her face. It belonged to a god, Zahara said. How do you know? She pointed out the signet ring, ICO Academy. She dropped it, and it landed with a soft thud. Behind her, on the other side of that row, Han heard Chewbacca growl. Uh, Doc, Han said. I think we've found your droid. Zahara looked, and as soon as she did, she realized that some small, dismal part of her had been expecting exactly this outcome. From the moment she'd arrived in solitary and waste had not been there. The 2-1-B lay in pieces across the floor behind the last of the beds. Its arms, legs, and head had all been systematically dismantled and crushed. Its torso beaten, so the instrumentation panel flickered listlessly, erratically beneath the cowl. It was still trying to talk, making garbled noises through its vocabulator. Dr. Cody? It said. Waste, what happened? I'm sorry, that test pattern wrote on the owl wall. It was marvelous. Would you like to taste it again? Waste, listen to me, she said, crouching down next to it. The patients, the bodies, where did they go? Look, Doc, Hans said behind her. Let's get out of here, huh? This whole place... Shh, Zahara said, not looking back, keeping her attention on the droid. The corpses waste, she prompted. Did someone take them? I'm sorry. There isn't any left. It doesn't walk without three and the two places. I'm sorry. Every reasonable attempt was made. The 2-1-B clicked and something sparked and clanked deep inside its lower processors. We must uphold the sacred oath of... It stopped, hiccuped, and seemed to regain some sense of what she'd asked it. An amazing thing. They're miracles, really. Marvelous. And then, with terrible brightness, they woke up. There was one last small internal click, although this one sounded more jarring, broken. And when it spoke again, its voice sounded thick and sluggish. They just... eat. What? The components in the droid's torso flickered again, but it didn't say anything else. Hey, Zahara said, turning around to Han and Chewbacca. Do either one of you know anything about droids? But Han and Chewie were gone. Now that's what I'm talking about. Did we just embark on a whirlwind galactic tour 
rushing past blazing stars and spiraling through an explosive core of a supernova because that's precisely how my cosmic sensors are tingling right now. It might just be time for a mid-voyage health check. Perhaps a quick trip to Dagobah for a holistic checkup with Master Yoda. Remember, there is no quote for this series. We're veering off the usual path to bring you raw, uncharted Star Wars thrills and to make your Halloween experience truly out of this galaxy. So until our next astral adventure, keep your eyes on the stars and I will see you on the Sith side. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening and may the force be with you. Sway was created by Kenai Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. Star Wars Death Trooper was read to you by Rick Washington. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I'm your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.